It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Lighthouse Faith Podcast, moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. The dark days have returned to Afghanistan under Taliban rule, with U.S. forces leaving almost 20 years to the day from the 9-11 terror attacks. American presence brought a freedom from the oppressive rule of Islamic extremists, but now that freedom is waning and some say really just no longer exists. Stories of fear and trepidation are rampant, and as reports of the Taliban going door to door, arresting or killing those who helped Americans or those who are of the wrong faith. And we're talking about Christians and Sunni Muslims and any other religion that is not what the Taliban preach. What is their plight? Well, Mandy Belts is the senior editor of World Magazine. She's been writing about the chaotic exit of American forces and the desperation of thousands in the wake of that departure. And she joins me now. Welcome, Mindy. Hi, Lauren. So one of the things that we didn't know we don't think about is the number of Christians that are in Afghanistan. How many are there um, now? I mean, live the there. State Department gave a read a couple of years ago in one of their human rights reports of somewhere in the neighborhood of 12,000. But, you know, this week, honestly, um, I that number could be accurate, according to the groups that I'm in touch with. You know, we're talking underground church some of the networks of these churches are as many as 500 people, uh, as best I can tell. And, um, but I, I also heard a report yesterday, it could be as many as 40,000. And I mean, what you have to understand, Lauren, is that this group largely did not exist in 2001. Wow. Um, this is a group that has grown up under the freedoms that the U.S. Um, war and the U.S. occupation for all its ups and downs, all its faults, you know, brought a degree of freedom that allowed them to exist at least underground. And all of them face real threats now. Who are these Christians? Um, one of the things I read that you wrote was that a lot of these are converts from Islam. They're, these are not, you know, Americans living in Afghanistan. Right. And, you know, unlike um, populations that we've covered in Iraq or in Syria, where there's, you know, there's a deep rooted historic church in those places, there really isn't a deep rooted historic church in Afghanistan. There have been missionary movements over um, a century or more, but but largely these are Muslim converts and um, uh, they have it, you know, they range uh, from people who come from what you would call secular Muslim families, families that were sort of agnostic Muslims, we might think of, mm-hmm. uh, to people who are former Mujahideen. I've, I've talked to a couple of people who, you know, had hard Islamist paths, who worked, one's a, a tank commander facing off against the Soviet occupation for one of the Mujahideen groups and, you know, sort of pulled in that radical direction, but somewhere along the line, Someone talked to them about Jesus. Someone gave them scripture, and or or modeled a better way, and and they began a conversion process that has led them to Christ and led them into these underground churches. And what kind of dangers do they face 
normally in uh, Afghanistan, even before the U.S. pulled out or began to pull out? Yeah, they have been through some some waves of, of what I would call persecution in, in 2010, 2011. I actually was there several times. I began to get to know some of the leadership in the church uh, as they were facing uh, kind of a crackdown where a number of them were put in jail. Ultimately, one was left in jail. He was tortured. He was raped. Uh, faced just some incredible challenges. And, and eventually, because of top-level intervention from the United States and some European powers, he was spirited out of Afghanistan under the cover of darkness. And, and I actually went and met with him in, in Europe, and, and that's where he is today. Um, so they have faced some really grievous situations that make them very careful. Most of them, uh, uh, you know, on, on paper, um, would be identified as Muslims. Many of them are working in the government, working in universities, working in businesses, and maybe don't even publicly identify as Christians, but but do privately and among their, their fellowship groups. But I will say this, a really interesting thing started just over the past year, even as Afghans realized that they were facing a, a new march from the Taliban, a number of the pastors of these churches, leadership in this church, got together, met uh, in another country, talked about their situation and decided we want to do something public. We want to identify ourselves as Christians. And they actually petitioned the government to change their identity on their national identity card. Um, it, it read that they were Muslims and they had it changed to other, but in the computer records, it stipulates that they are Christians. The reason wow. that they did that yeah, the, the reason that wow. they did that is that um, they wanted something to pass on to their children and to other generations. They wanted not to just be secret people who disappeared when they died, and they wanted a le- to begin to create a legacy. The downside of what they have done is that now that those government records are in the hands of the Taliban, Many of them have had their homes searched, and and they they are identifiable as believers, which is something that didn't happen before. This is so identifying as Christian on their official ID cards was this like a death sentence for them, or a potential death sentence? It definitely is a potential death sentence. One of the pastors, one of the leaders in the church, uh, and and a church group that we were in contact with in the early days of it when the Taliban took over in Kabul. Um, found out that, uh, I, I mean, actually, let me go back and say, he received a, a, a letter threatening him uh, from Taliban fighters that said, we know where you are and we know what you're doing. Just just pretty much that. Mm-hmm. Um, he took it seriously and he and his family left his home, but others were monitoring. And of course, they're all in touch with one another to see what might happen next. And um, sure enough, within a few days, the Taliban showed up to search his home, expecting to find him there, but he had already gone into hiding. So he and other leaders and, and many of the people that I'm in touch with, they have been in hiding for the last two to three weeks since the ta- Taliban came into Kabul. Have any of them been able to leave? Were they at the airport? Were they, did they have any kind of U.S. papers that allowed them to leave? What was their situation? Yeah, uh, some of all of the above. Uh, some of them were able to leave. A, a group 
got out early on that went overland through Pakistan and Iran, and we were able to track them a little bit. Um, subsequent to that, a whole number of groups. I mean, I, I mean, in some cases, with with lists of of hundreds of believers, um, were allowed onto the flight manifests as flights were arriving into the Kabul airport. We were tracking pretty closely with one of those groups, and um, there were about 120 people who actually had their names on the manifest, actually were called according to the protocols that were in place and said, it's time for you to come to the airport. Um, they approached the gate, and it was it, it was just days before the bombing at the Abbey Gate. And, and then they, they waited there for three or four days, like so many people. You know, we're just not oh hearing so much about this, but there were there were nearly 200 Afghans who were killed in that bombing that also killed 13 of our own U.S. service members. And 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 really up until just a few hours before that bombing happened, this group was there. So they were among the Afghans that we saw pressing into these gates. But they they had been told that they would be allowed onto planes. They got past the Taliban checkpoints, but they were not allowed past the U.S. checkpoints. Why was that? Why was but, what? Yeah, there's 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 no answer for that question, because repeatedly um, they were presenting their documentation. They were saying that you know we've been told that there's flight for and and actually because I was in touch with some of the groups who were making these private chartered flights available, and they were saying, oh yeah, the 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 plane is on the ground, but um, but the U.S. forces who were there at the gate did not allow them in even though they had the right paperwork? Even though they had the right paperwork, even though, as I understand, some of them in the group also hold the special immigrant visas um, or had the applications in process. And um, <clears throat> that's another problem that we're seeing is that some of these groups, some of these individuals, because they've worked with US groups, they've worked with NGOs. Uh, I just finished profiling a group um, that worked for a, a development organization set up in Mazari Sharif in 2001. And uh, it's a group that, that hired local Afghans to help with agriculture, with nutrition, with sanitation projects, people that this group worked with for 20 years. And now they cannot get their people out of the country. And a number of people in that group also are Christians. They're um, are non-Muslims, mm -hmm. and um, and they've had a similar situation. They have been on lists. They were at the Kabul airport. Now they have had to go back to their homes and go into hiding. They were never allowed through the gates and allowed onto planes that were waiting for them. How could this happen? How could this be so chaotic and not let into the airport, even though they had all the proper paperwork? What was the problem? Yeah, you know, you and I have been at covering these things for a long time, let's be honest. And I've never seen anything like this. And and I see as I talk to former military people who are trying to get these people evacuated, as I talk to uh, former diplomats, I mean, I mean, we've been talking with the U.S. and former U.S. ambassador for international religious freedom with Sam mm -hmm. Brownback, yeah. who's deeply committed to, to helping these religious minorities um, who face very specific threats, as you alluded to, from the Taliban. 
And no one understands why this is happening. No one understands why the State Department heard over and over people who are in daily contact with the State Department. So we don't understand it. But it feels like, I mean, one official said to us, it feels like we have to run operations against our own government right now. Do we? Do you blame the, the Biden administration? Does the Biden administration just did not get it together? Was not there was no leadership, and it just didn't happen properly? Do you blame them at all? Sure, I, I think that that's clear. I think that it, you know, and and part of the problem is the disconnect that we continue to see with the rhetoric that the president is using. He he, you know, yesterday in his speech. On, on Tuesday, he called the evacuation operation an extraordinary success. And, 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 you know, at the same time, you've got 90 some retired generals and admirals who are publishing a letter saying this has been an unmitigated disaster. Secretary of Defense, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs ought to resign. I mean, there's just this wide gap between what the Biden administration is saying has happened and what I think is definitely reality for the experts, but I think is reality for all Americans to see. We've seen these desperate situations of, of Afghans climbing onto planes, clamoring at the gates, desperate to get out. And, um, and, and we, I mean, let's acknowledge we've helped a lot of them. Um, but at the same time, we never planned on the numbers that we should have planned on. That it's it's well known. I mean, there were over eight hundred thousand Americans who served in Afghanistan over the course of the, our twenty-year operation there. And among those people, any of them could tell you an Afghan who worked with them was publicly identified with them and was going to be in danger when this day came. And the United States has repeatedly dragged its feet. I mean, yes, we should go back and talk about what happened under Obama, what happened under Trump, which in many ways set up this kind of scenario. But but President Biden is the president right now, and he had every opportunity to plan and to, and to make a successful withdrawal. No one was pressing him except the Taliban for this withdrawal. And he seems to have been following the Taliban playbook rather than a playbook in the interests of the United States and Afghans. Oh, wow. Um, we're going to take a break right now on uh, Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We'll be right back with Mindy Belts of World Magazine talking about um, the plight of Christians and religious minorities now in Afghanistan now that the U.S. forces have pulled out. Um, we'll be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. All right, we're back on Lighthouse Faith Podcast, talking with Mindy Belts, uh, senior editor of World Magazine, very much in touch with what is happening in Afghanistan to a lot of the religious minorities, particularly Christians. Um, now that they've pulled out, the U.S. forces have pulled out, Mindy, what is, what's their situation now? I mean, what what do they do now? Yeah, I mean, there's really just an interesting current that's happening Um We've all heard about these these operations that are being run by former military people, the digital Dunkirk operation, but there are all kinds of spinoffs from that. And and as this as this situation has gone from disaster to a worse disaster and that the, the withdrawal happened so quickly, these groups really began ramping up and um, they are in constant 
contact with people who are in danger in Afghanistan. They are in contact with former military people. I would say they're in contact with current military people getting the latest intelligence from Afghanistan. They're plotting ways for these people to get out that are both by air and overland. Um, there actually have been some private chartered flights that have continued to fly out of cities uh, outside of Kabul. Um, and uh, and they have they have taken, you know, 150, 200, 300 passengers at a time over the days this week since the Kabul airport closed. Mm-hmm. There is there is moment by moment doubt that that effort will be able to continue. Even yesterday I was on a call where uh, people were saying, we can't get these planes off the ground. We don't know what the Taliban is doing. We're trying to make sure that these planes don't get exploded or shot down, that kind of thing. So it's every option is a, is a life or death dangerous option for these people now. And yet what we're seeing is just this very durable, uh, desire to get out of the country, which tells you how desperate they are, that they will take their families, their elderly people, their children, and they will make these dangerous air trips or overland trips simply because they do not believe they can survive under the Taliban. And speaking of the Taliban, they must now rule the country. They cannot be these, you know, extremists with this sort of extremist philosophy and rule a country. You still have to have a foreign minister. You still have to have a, uh, a, a finance person in charge of economics. And the latest report out of Afghanistan is that they're going to be experiencing food shortages. You know, they're going to run out by the end of September. Yeah, there's a really desperate situation that is unfolding. And, and I think, again, a lot of this goes back to the way in which this withdrawal seem to proceed without planning, seem to not allow for what should have been foreseeable crises. And um, so, for instance, you you know, in in the days before the Taliban took over Kabul, the Biden administration, the U.S. Treasury Department moved to stop uh, disbursements of dollars to Afghanistan. What that means, and I'm not sure I'm good enough to explain this, but but mm-hmm. Afghanistan is its central bank assets. Most of them, I believe, about eighty percent of them are in the United States. Oh. The others are in Europe, and um, and the Treasury Department moved. Treasury Department normally, based on those assets, uh, disperses dollars to the country. That was also done in Iraq. It, it sort of becomes a dollar-based economy, and. Um, that stopped, and and that was a way of tying uh, those resources, you know, blocking them from the Taliban hands, which was was smart. But on the other hand, it also blocks them from Afghans' hands, who need money to buy food and things like that. And there's been this desperate effort to figure out how to get money into the country, money to pay for planes to fly to take people to safety, money for fuel to get people out of harm's way, that kind of thing. Let alone money for food. And it simply has been, I mean, I know people who have been moving thousands of dollars into Afghanistan by going to corner shops where they can do these uh, 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 Islamic transactions that go direct, you know, sort of a Western union Mm -hmm. that works under the Islamic system that can go from one shop in, say, Brooklyn to a shop in Kabul. And that's how people have been getting money in there. And um, somehow, again, this, you know, we don't want to free up 
assets in a way that make them available to the Taliban. Uh, but we have to free up assets that allow for Afghans to survive. And that's going to be the challenge moving forward. Is the, is the Taliban as bad as media reports make them out to be? I mean, are they as bad as they were before 20 years ago um, when they were behind, you know, the, 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 the terror attacks? The is- experts would, I mean, the experts would say so. And I, I don't want to pretend to be an expert, but you know, you don't have to go far back. If you, if you Google Taliban attacked, you will get just a, a slew of headline stories. And so, you know, going back to in, in March and April, I was working on a story uh, about the possibility, uh, you know, as we saw the Taliban having these ground successes and launching a military campaign to take back the country talking to people there and and then just realizing, you know, in May you had a triple bombing in Kabul that destroyed a school for girls. And um, the Taliban never claimed responsibility for it, but many people blamed them for it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there were hundreds of casualties from that. And that has been a steady drumbeat. And so, you know, the United States, and I would include U.S. media like myself in this, have had our attention elsewhere. But the Taliban has never stopped being a, a presence and being a menace, I would say, to people in Afghanistan. If under that kind of menace, how were Christians actually even able to spread the faith at all? Yeah, that's a, that's fascinating because I've asked this in questions, and and you know, one guy told me who who met someone in Kabul that was a Christian and said he became really interested in understanding more about Christianity because he didn't know very much about it. And he's, he went online and he Googled Christians in Afghanistan and it, it eventually led him to a website that had something like chat rooms. And it was, it was run out of the UK by Afghan um, expatriates and, and, and he was discipled that way. And he actually went on to become one of the leaders in the church. And it has been that way. There are, there are Afghan Christians in in Western countries. You know, if you think about the history there, we've had uh, Afghans have been one of the largest refugee groups year upon year upon year running for the last 25 years. Mm-hmm. And um, and so they're all over the world. And and many of those who have become Christians, it is, it is their job to disciple Christians inside Afghanistan. And um, the internet and Facebook and and these kinds of chat rooms have made that possible. And it's really fascinating because um, sometimes, you know, one, one Afghan Christian told me, you know, distrust is, um, he basically said, distrust is the water we drink here. We've, you know, years upon years of war has taught us not to trust one another. And he said, even if I met another believer on the street, I might not introduce myself to him. But they have been connected in virtual spaces where they don't face the same kind of dangers and distrust. So, but social media can be a problem too for them because I would imagine that's how the Taliban actually can hunt them down. Absolutely. Even yesterday, we were hearing reports that that sounded very credible. The Taliban is going to shut down internet and cellular service in one hour. Um, and I don't know if something had gone up on one of the Taliban channels suggesting that. What I've heard is that the Taliban 
doesn't perhaps have the capability of shutting it down, that, that they have been in some areas actually taking down towers, which suggests that they don't know how to take down a whole grid. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just don't know. But clearly, and I, and I think this gets into another um, piece of the U.S. withdrawal, massive amounts of equipment, of American equipment left on the ground. And, um, and, and lots of, of records left from the Afghan government. You know, we have an Afghan president who fled the country on a moment's notice. And um, the Taliban have access to that information and that uh, some of our hard- hardware and software now. And oh, so yeah. definitely we have evidence that they are using that in their in their the way that they have tracked down people and then we had the report that the u.s actually was sharing names for manifests with the taliban as they were trying to get people through the airport and and i can't tell you how that report rippled through the afghan community and and including the christian community that all of a sudden Every, every, there was no one for people to trust. Uh, their name could show up anywhere. Uh, even a flight manifest that was designed to get them out of the country could be something that would fall in the hands of the Taliban. And the phones as well, you were talking about before, about how even the phones can be a target of the Taliban because they, they look for the numbers that people are calling or that are people are calling them. Yes, and certainly the United States had technology inside Afghanistan and, and hardware for, for monitoring, for doing surveillance um, on, on phone networks. And we don't know what of that is in their hands or what they might have access to. I mean, the Taliban is, is um, I, I've seen them portrayed both ways by analysts. I've seen them portrayed as having lots of access to money because of their drug trafficking networks in Afghanistan and their ties to some um, uh, people in, in Pakistan. But I've, then I've seen them portrayed as, you know, impoverished and they won't be able to actually form a legitimate government unless they get access to uh um, the country's assets. And I think there's some of both that actually is true. I, I think they, they do have deep ties to drug trafficking. And you know, keep in mind, when ISIS came into Iraq and stunned all of us by, within a matter of days, taking over a third of the country, everyone kept asking the question, how can they afford to sustain this? Where's, their, where's the money coming to buy fuel, to buy weapons? To buy, and, and we learned that they, there was a whole black market economy that was supporting them. And it wouldn't surprise me that the same kind of thing is at work now with the Taliban. Oh dear. Um, And then just one last thought about the Christians there. Are they strong enough to survive in Afghanistan? And we saw what happened in China. I mean, China, you know, Christianity just ballooned and, and exploded because uh, the Christians were quite fervent and, and, and it's growing in by leaps and bounds in China. Is that a possibility in, in some place like Afghanistan? I think that's a great question. And it gets at, it, you know, really what is Christianity and what is the power of the gospel that's behind Christianity? And I would I would just say as a Christian that, you know, that the gospel itself is a life-changing narrative. And, and we see over and over again that it can enter into the dark pla- darkest places of the world and, and change people's lives and really change nations as a result. And so from that standpoint, I don't think we should doubt at all that Christians 
could survive in Afghanistan if they are not able to flee. And, and you know, an interesting side story is that there was at one point a group of about three to 400 Christians trying to get out of the country. And as the door shut at the Kabul airport, as it, they went back to their homes and realized they weren't secure, as they tried to get on some of these chartered flights and just found it too difficult to do that, about a hundred of them said, you know what, we think we should just stay and help our people here. There is so much desperation here right now that we think we should stay. Hmm. And um, the the people in the United States who were helping them didn't quite know what to do with that. But I think that speaks to the power of the gospel and the durability uh, of people who claim to know Christ. And so in that sense, Anything can happen. And yes, we could see even a flourishing. But I think we don't, as, as those of us sitting here in the United States, we don't want to s- sit on the sidelines and watch them also face potential annihilation and really open atrocities. And, and, and my greatest fear right now is that in the current situation, we aren't going to know what's going to happen, that at any point Afghanistan could just go dark on us. And it will be very, very difficult to understand what's actually happening to some of these most vulnerable groups. You know, I remember talking to um, Dr. Tim Keller about why China was experiencing this explosion of Christianity. And he mm-hmm. said from a practical point of view, he says, you know, Christianity grows um, under pain and suffering. It's just one of those, it's a faith that grows under pain and suffering. He says from a theological point of view, from a pastor point of view, I would have to say that, you know, repeat the words of the Bible that says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. And I think, I think that's kind of, you know, the confidence, you know, any Christian can have in what's happening in Afghanistan. Um, That's right. Yeah. So, but Minnie, um, Minnie Belts, I want to thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Anything else you'd like to, the thoughts you'd like to leave with us before, um, you know, we sign off here? Yeah, I think, you know, we're seeing so much about how how strong Afghans are and how much they have gained. Even I've been forced to do a double look and, and really see how much Afghans actually have, have improved their lives over the last 20 years. If you look at their health statistics, their education statistics, and the things we've been talking about with groups like the Christians, it's really phenomenal. And it just makes me think that this is going to be, I think, something of a call for a self-examination for Americans and for U.S. foreign policy. We have seen our country go through two incredibly expensive, incredibly painful uh, wars that have been just disastrous for the countries yeah. where they took place. And I really think that we, we Americans, we voters, have to be asking new questions and have to be paying more attention to what our politicians are saying, because they are the ones who lead us into these wars. Uh, very good point. Thank you so much, Mindy Belts, Senior Editor of World Magazine. And thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Thank you, Lauren, for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. And thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.